When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply not small dogs mm-hmm. and they say they i want a glen because i want something calmer and smaller and i'm like this is the opposite this is way even if you know people who downsize from irish wolfhounds which isn't uncommon at all they're looking for an easier dog and i'm like it's a smaller dog but it's way more powerful and strong-willed than the wolfhounds often mm-hmm. are mm-hmm. and what is a typical uh, height of the dog well, that is where we are trying to say that the dogs, um, the standard says 12 and a half to 14 inches. The native standard doesn't have a bottom and they're um, 35, um, around 35 pounds. And that was kind of to make them the same size as the European badger. So if they're going to pull them out that, mm-hmm. you know, they're about that size, they can be bigger. Um, when they have done the survey on Glenn's, 35 pounds for a male that fits the standard of 12 and a half to 14 inches that has the body is long, deep and full, that deep chest. So they have, a, they go, Oh my God, look at the head. No wonder they're so big. And I'm like, but what really makes the dogs heavy is this long rib cage that has a very big heart and lungs and viscera. And those organs are what weigh a lot. So we focus on what the weight of a Glen is, but a judge can't pick the Glen up. They have to just look at them. So our standard is actually pretty hard to fit for a mature male because if they're 12 and a half to 14 inches with a chest that's long, deep, and full, maximum substance for size, that at maturity you're going to see a Glen that is between you know 40 and 45 pounds. And obviously there can be ones that are look in you know, their outline's perfectly correct. They fulfill everything otherwise. But if they're 14 inches, they're probably going to be closer to 50 pounds at mm-hmm. full maturity. The It says in the standards and the various standards around the world that it says bitches less or bitches somewhat less. It doesn't say how much. And in my particular line, what I see over and over is my bitch, my my males are short leg, you know, they're deep chested short, and, and they, so they're under that standard with that deep chest. So that old fashioned look to mine is they don't have tons of air underneath of them, which is fine. As I said, like they dig and work underground the same way the dachshunds do so that they have that long rib cage and it's rocky ground. So they're going to rest on their sternum or their breastbone, the bottom of that. And because their elbows are, the the chest is deeper than the elbows, they're not going to be scraping their elbows. They can sweep the dirt out to the side and they can wiggle through and round um, in these, this rocky ground roots and things like that that are underneath. And uh, they can work very well that way. So, you know, um, the, the, uh, but my females tend to be quite a bit smaller much you know really like 30 pounds and you know uh it's 12 and a half to 14 inches my bitches are usually about 11 you know an inch shorter and then they can have really big 
boys. So in each litter, it's like that. So, you know, not all of them are like that. Uh, so we have what we call kind of doggy bitches, which sounds very insulting, but they kind of do well as like the girls look like, you know, they can really, they have a lot of substance and look more similar to the males. Mm -hmm. Just in my particular line, it's just weird to me that I can have what, you know, I'm kind of accused of having the pocket for hens for the curls, but my pocket Glen girls can have these, you know, whopping big boys Mm -hmm. uh, because they have that back in the background so we have that size that's there but more important than the exact numbers I I try and press on people this is an incredibly powerful dog and when you go to look at it fluffy cute stuffed animal if you go to pick it up I think that people are prepared to have them weigh about half as much as they do Mm -hmm. so this expression comes over their face like they went to go pick up a pinata and it turned out that it was made of cement. Or they said, you know, the the clay pot, you know, one that's filled with dirt versus empty. You know, you, you they, they're not hollow. That's not hair. That's organs. They It weighs a lot. They mm-hmm. And so when they pit that weight against you and those powerful, powerful muscles... With very little activity, they just stay very fit and extremely muscular and strong. They can, you know, pull a truck, I think, pretty easily. You know, they're, they're just unbelievably strong. So you have to work with the puppies and say, you're not ever to use your physical strength against me. That's not what it's for. Mm-hmm. So um, if you fail to do that, then you get to have the experience of being uh, yanked around like your water skiing. It feels exactly the same, like the boat bolted before you were quite ready. <laughs> your arms feel like they're coming right out of their socket. It's not pleasant. And could you talk maybe about some of the modern health issues that um, the Breed Club is, is aware of and working on? Well, the big one that we started off with was this was discovered um, about a decade ago, uh, is that... and. It, it's the easiest one because it's what we call, it has a DNA test. So you can do a blood test and it's a simple autosomal recessive uh, disease and it causes a late onset um, blindness. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't really discovered for a long time. There was probably a lot of affected glens. And when a dog becomes blind in old age, like with cataracts, which you can see, you can't see this is that, um, it goes along with some of the things that people think happen as dogs get older anyway. So they maybe want to stay closer to the home and, and they're not like us. So their, their eyesight is not their, their governing, their most important sense. They use hearing and smell a lot more. So their, if their eyesight starts to go and it doesn't go until they're, you know, eight to 10 years old, it doesn't start to go away. I think that there are probably a lot of affected dogs and it just wasn't really recognized until we started looking for it. And when we started looking for it, we found out that it was actually pretty prevalent, but there's a blood test. So as long as you know what your dog's status is and you don't breed um, a carrier to another carrier or a carrier to an affected, um, then you're not going to have any puppies that have any blindness. So a carrier a dog that has one normal gene and one affected gene has no symptoms whatsoever. 
and never will have any symptoms. So you don't have a partial expression of this. It's an either or. So you have to have two copies of it to have the disease. And even then, it's, it's a little bit variable expression. So some will maybe go blind a little bit earlier and a little bit more severely. And some dogs might, even though they're affected, might not really notice. But we won't be noticing because now that we have the blood test, no responsible breeder is going to breed any puppies that have this. Currently, we are required to test for hip and elbow dysplasia and also to look for other eye diseases, which is common in a lot of breeds. But um, my interest is in skeletal dysplasia and things like that in humans. So, you know, I think this is important information to gather, but these are not clinically necessarily big problem uh, diseases. So I, I think that the biggest problem for Glenn's is not what we have now, but what we're looking at is uh, it's important to use health testing as information, but people say, I want to go, you know, this is what I did with human beings. Like I want this test, I want this test. And it's natural for us as human beings to think if I did enough tests, no, but nothing would be affected or sick. There's no way of warding that off. So you look at this and you generally try and make responsible decisions, stay current, new information all of the time, uh, try and make sure that you're doing everything environmentally, like hip dysplasia now is very much related, we know, to the environment that the newborn puppies are in. So if they're on slippery surfaces, they can slip one time and you know pull those hips out of alignment in a permanent sort of way. So um exercising them the right way for Glenn's like they should never jump down they're a heavy dog they shouldn't be uh while their growth plates are slow take a long time to close you know jumping down is like an old lady like falling down and putting a lot of weight on her wrist it's just going to break so you don't want a young dog to be in a position so uh, going downstairs is either very careful or an overall no-no, definitely jumping down off of any sort of height, like sofa or the bed or things like that. It only takes one jump to crush a growth plate and, you know, make the legs grow unevenly or the bones and the legs grow unevenly because you damage that growth plate, uh, which is already very fragile be- because it's a dwarf dog. So, um we, I think paying attention to nutrition has something to do with it. You don't want them to grow too fast. So I, for me as a breeder and my genetics background is it, we, you can't separate these things out, the environmental effects, the epigenetic effects, or the genetic effects. So they all act together. So you do the tests that you can to make sure that you're avoiding genetic things if possible but you also make sure anything that you can do from an environmental point of view to prevent a, a propensity to have a disease from ever turning into a disease, I put a lot of effort in that because we have a, you know we have a lot of control over that. So I, I think that that's um, that that's very important. Now, what I had said before about being careful about over testing is we have had this huge increase in um, canine cancers and uh, across many of the breeds. So when you have a breed like Glenn's that very small gene pool, and what that means is once a breed becomes recognized and registered, 
you can only use dogs that have parents that are both registered. And people don't understand how gene pools work. They would think like, okay, well, I need to go outside of my breeding, like go to maybe Europe so I can expand the gene pool. You can never, and, and people who should know better constantly are saying this, which is a terrible misunderstanding of how genetics work. You, it's like when you close the stud book, this is what this is called, like you can no longer bring any outside dogs. That was the day you stocked your pantry forever. Mm-hmm. So from then on, you will never have any more genes than you did on that first day. You can never add another gene in. And so each generation, the only genes that go forward are the ones that were used. So if you think of it as a pantry, is once you've eaten something down you can't ever get it again so once you ate all the sugar there's no sugar there's no flour you know so we we want to uh, have an approach this is what a preservation breeder would do to keep as many genes as we can so you look at all these dogs and you say what do they have to offer to the breed but mostly people look and go will this dog win a dog show or how much does the dog cost? So there's other factors in which dogs are kept that really go against preservation principles. So my goal as a preservationist is, especially, you know, when um, I place new puppies and things, is especially with the boys. I say, well, you know, as a breeder, my heart's with the girls because, you know, that's where your litters are going to come from. And I watch this and each one. But the boys are the future. So if I have nice boys with good coats and good temperaments and great bone and substance and maybe freedom from diseases that we'll keep finding and being able to run these DNA tests that someone could say, oh, my dog has this trait, and it seems like lots of Glens have this, you might be able to go back and get frozen semen on a dog that did not have that. So my goal is to sort of bank as much of the, you know, worthy dogs for the future that we can. I feel that's the best way to help safeguard uh, the preservation of the breed that way. Because again, the dogs that don't get used, all their genes are lost forever. You cannot bring them back in again. So, you know, we take one and we breed, you know, we people are kind of like, I want to breed the best to the best. Well, what's the best? I mean, to me, a good breed example that has a good coat and a good temperament and things like that, that have those qualities they don't have to be the one that won the dog show. Mm-hmm. And in fact, sometimes I would look and say, my ones that will win the dog show often are because they're flashier or their show-off personality, which maybe not be the greatest temperament for your companion dog in the world anyway. Mm-hmm. But uh, overall, those are the characteristics of like, we should be keeping, I think, and breeding many of these good, very good or good glens that are healthy and sound and have the characteristics we need in the breed instead of this scrabble to have the best to the best, which is really just based a lot sometimes on style and fashion and things like that. And that would be fine if after five years you didn't turn around and everybody tried to breed like to one style and now all of the other dogs, like as I said, mine old fashioned type is like, well, maybe you don't like that. Maybe you like a you know prettier or fancier dog. So is the, but what's the end result that all of the dogs that aren't like, you know, one dog are lost forever. So I think there's a lot of room because there's interpretation, 
especially if the dogs have the important breed type characteristics to hold on to these for the future. And so for me, again, for all my puppies, I'm like, it, I can't do this by myself. So people have aberrant blends. They have to be part of the mission. They have to care about the breed. It's what comes along with, with a, with one of my puppies kind of comes that responsibility and mm-hmm. they don't need to take it on. There's plenty of other people um, selling Glenn puppies, but for my, that's why I do it and I can't do it by myself. So everybody, uh, I don't make people do it. I just try and find people that that's the reason that they wanted a Glenn in the first place because it helps us all work together and think about the future of the breed. Mm-hmm. They have their great mothers. They have large litters because, again, that giant dog thing a lot of the time. So mm-hmm. I've had a couple litters at 10. And, uh, you know, but they're very, very good mothers. Um, and uh, they live breed pretty easily. Um, I'm an OBGYN doctor. I have a higher cesarean rate than I probably should because – you know knowledge is deadly so every time you know things that people might not know could be like a little warning sign Mm -hmm. they don't know that it's a little warning sign so they wait a a little more patiently not me I kind of like alarm bells go off so I probably have higher rates of this because I keep track of numbers like progesterones and things like that I don't let them go over to you, you know I'm I'm excessively cautious I just don't have the nerve to take the risk when I know about the risk. So, you know, it, ignorance is bliss, you know, and that's definitely true. And the little knowledge, like in my part is deadly. So I'm pretty careful. And so it ends up being quite expensive. And also, you know, I watch all of them. It's a, you know, they're big dogs and they're good mothers, but uh, I live in the whelping box. Like for ten days, I don't believe it's in the back of my, clo- you know, my a big walk-in closet, and that's my whelping room. I have everything set up in there. It's next to a laundry room, and basically, I don't leave to do anything except for to go to the bathroom that's a comp- right adjacent to it, mm-hmm. uh, because you know something could happen in the blink of an eye, and uh, I think of watching humans with their new babies and I help uh, new moms um, establish uh, you know that's that sort of obstetrician thing is to uh, whether you nurse your baby or not pump or use breast milk is it, it, it's a it's a pretty steep learning curve in that first 48 hours or whatever uh, to help them get ready and there's a big push you know, towards human babies is you can never sleep with the baby because you could roll over and they could, you know, have, they can't be on their back. And mom, moms have a lot of anxiety. And I always laugh and say, well, you never see human people. Like in the hospital, um, I live in the whelping box, but I never see anyone saying, well, you can sleep with your baby because I'll just sit here and watch you. And you're not going to squash your baby while I'm watching you. So it would be nice for human mothers that are trying to get in sync with their infants if someone would watch them. But it's very unusual that um, breeders tend to be, you know, kind of over the top. Right. And, and I'm definitely over the top as well. You know, I would fit right into that mold as well, I think. Yeah. Right. Well, um, you know, I end up talking. So, so the 
personally, I feed a mostly raw diet Mm -hmm. that is pretty high quality. I don't do homemade anymore because I travel a lot and I want to make sure things are easy for my husband. So I I feed a kind of a a lot of commercial frozen raw or freeze dried. And then for growing stages like pregnant moms, um, puppies, uh, lactating moms, they need extra carbohydrate along with that. So then I feed uh, kibble um, to all them in addition. And But I tell people, you know, it, I, my diet is pretty expensive, and I've written a book on eating, you know, as a doctor called Evolutionary Eating, How We Got Fat and Seven Simple Fixes. So I, I'm very interested in diets in general and different kinds of food and micronutrients and things like that. So you know, I'm willing to spend to sort of experiment. I think there's a lot of really good quality kibbles. Um, And so people, when people say, so why don't you feed it? Well, I really don't like brushing teeth and I have a lot of dogs and I found that by feeding the raw food diet, my dogs never ever need to have their teeth cleaned. And that's probably has more to do with it um, than anything. So I sort of go, oh, I don't have to get supplements and I don't have to brush their teeth and I don't have to get their teeth clean. So the expense evens itself out in the long run. Maybe it doesn't, but it comes closer. And that's the that's how I go about doing things. I think um, uh, that, you know, there's pretty good guidelines at each year is that you just feed a high-quality food that ha- came from high-quality ingredients. And there's a lot of them. And then people keep changing their mind, you know. There's new research that comes out every six months. So I tend to, I like Whole Dog Journal. I think it's a really good resource. They review wet foods and dry foods every year. And uh, I use that as a guideline. I rotate my proteins um, so that they're exposed to a variety. I tend not to feed chicken, um, mainly because chicken is in, the chicken and chicken meal is kind of in everything everywhere. So uh, there's just lots of other choices. So, um, it was anecdotal. Like my own, like I have one dog that was sort of allergic to chicken and, mm. and I'd like probably that I just sort of avoid it. I did. I don't consider them to be allergic to chicken. I use chicken as treat and baits and things like that. I just kind of avoid it. I'm really sort of anal retentive about the omega-3s. I don't feed any fish from a bag because it goes rancid immediately. You have to pay more from it. So um, the omega-3s that are in that are very fragile in terms of air and light. We know that anyway. So I, like, don't – if it says fish, I don't feed fish from a bag. My dogs get sardines or mackerel – once a week on Friday, that's all they get, or uh, salmon or krill oil, which has no protein in it, and so you can do that with the pumps. Um, and they also all get coconut oil, and I think that helps with it's good for gut health and just in general, it's got antimicrobial and antifungal properties, so they get that added. And uh, it, yeah, I think it probably makes their coats nice and things, but. It just helps add some fat to that diet that doesn't make the dogs fat. So I'm careful with the carbohydrate. I think that's what makes them fat. Anyway, all all kibble 
you can't kibbleize something. It has to be mostly carbohydrates. So I just look at kibble as a carbohydrate source. So it says the protein amount that's in it, and that's manipulated around, or they use a lot of soy protein and things. So I don't like soy protein. I like regular meat proteins, the kind of things that I would eat myself, like identifiable animal food source. So I think dishes are just general is it necessary? Probably not, but it's what I do. And I do not twist people's arms to do that as well. It's just the way that I, I do things. And I think there's lots of good choices. Mm-hmm. The breeding part takes a huge amount of my time and yeah. sort of promoting the breed. I go to dog shows in confirmation. I think that Glenn's do exceptionally well in a, a lot of their performance things and one of the ones that they really seem to they love um the fast cat or lower coursing which is a sprint mm-hmm. so they like to go real fast for a very short distance as long as it's not too hot outside and they're quite good at that they like the nose work or the scent work um they change the rules because the dogs are short and with their legs as long as you wait until maturity to have them jumping a lot of them like to do agility uh they're suited for obedience only with someone who like is not you know is doing things with their glen and sort of understands the process and has a special team bond with their dog to do things because generally they are not too interested it doesn't make much sense to them so right. they're not a obedient mm-hmm. they, they 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 would enjoy being obedient until you were lulled in and then when a whole bunch of people were watching you would be very disobedient that would be very entertaining that is a very glenn thing to do to like draw the audience and then do none of that but they can learn it they love learning tricks and things but they really they don't get bored because uh they will amuse themselves at your you have to have a sense of humor to have a glenn they very much enjoy making you feel foolish and uh, sort of laughing about that. So I had to learn some hard lessons that were embarrassing from uh, my Glenn's because they, uh, I guess the best way to describe it is mocking. (laughs) They like games and they like you to sort of get flustered and lose your temper. (laughs) So they do, they do, um, recognize like that you're in different places and you can do something some places but not others and they like to do they 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 enjoy they will make things into a game and a lot of times when people come they go why are they doing that and i said well they're just doing that now because you've made it into a game mm-hmm. like i have um one person who is just it's not common behavior in glenn's per se it's not uncommon for puppies to eat poop this is something that a lot of puppies will do so there was one and she said he just keeps eating the poop and i'm like but you just are so upset and riled about it he's just like playing the you know watch me gobble the poop as fast as i can because you're gonna go crazy yeah and i said it's like you need to watch um you know, mad TV and watch Stuart, you know, shove things in his mouth faster than his mom, you know, mother says, don't do that, Stuart! <laughs> you know, then that's the Glenn. Like, he was like, this is just too entertaining to pass up. It's worth eating poop over. <laughs> um, so they would do things to 
you know, they really like that interaction and the game of it. So it, as far as training is concerned, I definitely recommend people when training them is that they use like what I call the positive choice mm-hmm. method. So I, there's a lot of people who are doing this. The science is way behind this. And so you generally ignore things that you don't like because Glenn's love you to go, no, they go, yeah, you think, you think no. <laughs> so don't ever say no if they're going to get the upper hand and they get the upper hand with amazing frequency. So, you know, I will say knock it off and kind of keep control and boundaries. But in general, I try and think one step ahead and have them have a choice and say, are you the dumb dog or are you the smart dog? And they love to be the smart dog. Mm-hmm. So they a lot of times will do what I want so that they can be, or, you know, I can't say what I want or they might not want. But they make the choice that gets them to be, to figure it out. So I le- have learned to be more patient and wait. And it seemed so counterintuitive to me for the way I was trained to start with with dogs. But it works brilliantly with the Glens because... They do like to be smart and to have made the right decision. And you have to wait and give them a chance to figure it out. And they like figuring it out. And they love the engagement with their person. So it's based, obviously, on you get this reward, like you get a treat if you do it the right way. But honestly, they just, the, the, um, the time they get to spend where they're like really with you in that time is very rewarding to them inherently. So I found that that works great. Interesting. Like, I don't have a kennel. My house is sort of a semi-kennel. Uh, yeah. Um, but a lot of people go, oh, it's like, I have all this land. And I'm like, yeah, well, I have a lot of land, too. And my Glens like to spend a lot of time, you know, barking mm-hmm. at the back door. They want to be where the people are. Mm-hmm. So if I'm out in the backyard, they're perfectly happy. Or out anywhere, they're happy to be out there. But if I'm in the house... They want to be in the house and they have an uncanny ability to tell whether you are uh, working or looking at Facebook on your computer because they they act like, um, you know, uh, stern governess. If you're like text, you know, doing text messaging at the dinner table, they know what you're doing. And they're like, if you have time to be socializing with them, you have time to be socializing with but they really like they're super easy they're not a demanding in unusual way like they're not a lap dog they're not bothersome they're great like if you work at home because they just kind of go where you are and stay in the room i think that they like to watch human beings like we like to binge watch tv i think they just like watching what we're doing so they really do not like to be excluded and i learned the biggest punishment I can do to a Glen was taught to me by my Glens, which is if I want to punish them, I look at them and establish eye contact and then I avert my face. That's exactly what they do to me. And I'm like, I go, you're dead to me right now. Like, really? That, like, you are nothing. You don't even exist. They are very communicative. And I do that with my body language because that's what they do to me to let me know that they're displeased about something they first make sure that i'm looking at them so they don't just ignore me first they make sure that i'm paying attention and then they very deliberately turn their head or their gaze away from me 
So I just said, oh, obviously, you think that's a terrible thing, so I'm going to do it to you. And they definitely think that's, they hate that. So they want to be, they're not intrusive or needy or anything, you know, that way. When they, when people call me and say, they're doing this, they're demanding, they're scratching, they're jumping on me, and I'm like, because you are not communicating with them. And they're trying all these different ways to get through to you, and you're going to have to learn to watch them and be interested because you don't have to do what they say, but they won't stop trying to get their message through if they don't think that you've heard it. Mm -hmm. So you get a lot of, you know, then I'm like, well, apparently you don't hear anything except for shrieking or jumping or, you know, that you don't have to have those behaviors. If you were able to, uh, you know, just communicate with them and they watch they're watching you all the time so our body language is really you know that's common in dogs across the board it's just it's pretty intense in the glens so that's why i said a lot of times people who have sort of good dog sense and are used to being around dogs or maybe more challenging dogs or multi-dog households it's not training it's not it's not a dog trainer it's Mm -hmm. dog behavior so it's a lot of those things about sort of awareness of uh, what their behavior is. Mm. So for some people, they go, I don't know what you're talking about. And they, you would think they did it naturally, but they don't, do, we don't do it naturally. We just probably observed it at some time. And, you know, we do what works. So does the dogs. So they become those people and people who are like that, that they're, you know, air quotes, good with dogs. They generally think Glenn's are, awesome because they're so intuitive Mm -hmm. and they usually are you know and and people say well what are they doing it's the same as professional athletes it's not what they're doing it's what they're not doing most people confuse the hell out of dogs because they're doing 50 things at one time the dog's like what what do you want i'm trying to figure it out Mm -hmm. and they're like flapping their like i'm trying to get them not to jump and i'm like but you're flapping your hands like they're some sort of a flirt pole or something Mm -hmm. you they don't know that that's not a tug toy because you initiate it by flapping your hands and they will always go what do you mean i don't know what you're talking about you have to video them you know to say you're you know the dogs are watching all of these and we're just unaware of the lot of things that we do so people who are good with dogs i'm like just quiet down like Cesar Milan, you know, there's he's so controversial, you know, his methods or whatever. I said, but if you turn off the volume, okay, mm-hmm. and just watch him and then like just be like him. Like his body posture and mm-hmm. things around dogs, he gets this great behavior because dogs understand him. Mm-hmm. Because he's clear. He's not doing a whole lot of he's and you know, you don't need to listen to any of that as much as just watching you know, not doing anything except for what needs to be done so that your communication is clear. Well, that's not very natural for a lot of people, and they're they're unaware. But the dogs don't know the difference. They're like, what? What do you want? You're saying 50 things all at once. So I'm just going to ignore you because clearly you don't have, you know, clue. And people are, you know, shouting words, and dogs don't understand the words. And the shouting is like, I know you're upset about something. I just have no idea what it is you're all upset about. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, some people that this is like, it, it is, you can get better at it. 
but you have to be willing if you aren't already there to uh, work on those things because that's what the dogs are doing. They're watching us and you know, you're, you're, you're showing your poker, you know, most people are not very poker faced and the Glens don't like that either because they want to see what you want. So you show them, you know, you communicate with your body and then they, uh, they're watching your facial expressions and things and just their glands are very communicative. So it's a double-edged sword. For some people, that's what makes them great. For other people, that's what makes them challenging. Right. Here, this is, I'll show you my Glenn side of my personality. I'm very opinionated. Uh-huh. And my opinionated, are, my things are not necessarily very popular. Mm-hmm. And I'm not one to like waste a lot of time. So I don't like incrementalism. Like if there's a big thing that you can do, I like the 80-20 principle. Uh-huh. Do something big. And to me, if we can do something that brought a lot of people to be interested, you don't need them all to pursue it. So if you bring in a hundred people, you know, and only three are interested that, you know, then you bring in a thousand people and that would be 30 people. So I would be more, I'm very enthusiastic about doing things that would increase overall interest. And, um, I would say, uh, I'm from, you know, academic medicine, sort of science and things like that is like how are scientific discoveries made? They're made like one gravestone at a time because you have to wait for the old guards to die off before you get any new ideas. Mm-hmm. Um, I would say that the dog show world has some of that. That being said is you just everybody's got like these little micromanagement things that they want to do. Not me. I think that the reason for dog shows originally is and this is what people say is to evaluate to have an objective opinion about the quality of your breeding stock and when people would go to dog shows is to look at other dogs and who to breed with and things like that Mm -hmm. and so they keep quoting that as if it's relevant well here is what is relevant dog shows are where dogs are shown off it's a competition it's subjective it's a contest it's a beauty contest to some extent or a fashion you know, some, it's some of those things, but it's a dog show. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I think, and this, this is what's very controversial, is I think that neutered dogs should be allowed to be shown in confirmation. Mm-hmm. Not like in the altered class or anything different. Maybe, you know, we have these things called specialties where, you know, that's where the whole club gets together. They have their own rules. It's a special dog show where it's only one breed and you have seminars and things and everybody gets together. And that's definitely about breeding. And maybe they could have an altered class if they wanted to. But in regular dog shows, I think that they should be, people should want to see the dogs and everybody just keeps leaving because it's boring and you're not allowed to talk to people because then they think, Oh, you're trying to curry favor with the judges and things like that. So then, you know, everyone, it's all about these points and rankings and things like that. I play this game, so I'm in on one side of it. But people, I'm like, well, look, if you have a female and she's had two litters, she's proven herself as breeding stock. Like, should she not compete? Mm-hmm. But if people are looking, I think a good example of the breed that the judge should be able to point out what they think are the best examples of the breed. And if it's a male... And he's being what we call campaigned, like he's out there. He's usually not being bred. So 
you can have frozen semen on him. He doesn't. It doesn't interfere with his ability to be breeding stock. And as far as the females are concerned, if we're campaigning them to have a judge evaluate the quality of your breeding stock, well, by the time they ju- finish judging them, they're too old to have babies, and they might not even have it. Mm-hmm. So I believe it's at cross purposes, and I think it is a. Um, they said, "Oh, well, it encourages all this stuff," and I said. No, I think if you brought in all these people and they became interested in their breed and they were looking and talking to people and seeing, oh, this is a cool breed and do this, that somebody would maybe start off with a, a dog that was neutered because the vet pushed them or it was a pet to start and they caught the bug. And then those are the people who are going to want to breed a litter. Like it just isn't enough. When you develop an addictive habit, just like a drug habit, your demand goes up so these people you know they dabble their foot and then before they know it it's an all-consuming passion Mm -hmm. and they want to do it better than other people how do i know this because that's exactly how i am and i'm not that different from a lot of other people it's like you know you 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 talk 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 but then you want to show oh i could do it better than other people and this is nothing new people have been breeding dogs for hundreds and hundreds of years and to a certain extent, you can look back over the time that dog breeding as a hobby among the gentry, among that this is the purebred dog, it's very elitist and things like that. But look, how did you distinguish yourself? It didn't matter whether you went to college and there's great point average. So, so being a person that could, you know, was an excellent dog breeder or a horse breeder, it's a way that you distinguish yourself from your peers. It's a way to be looked up to as mm-hmm. a as a skill. I mean, George Washington was an amazing dog breeder and an amazing contributor to the American foxhounds and the difference they are to the English foxhounds. And, and when you look at something like that about breeding a pack of dogs, that the point, even though we bring them into the ring and they're judged as individuals, to hunt, what you're looking for is to have a pack that what they call is like you can throw a blanket over them. So what you're really looking for is a bunch of dogs who move and work together really, really in good synchronicity so you're not breeding a dog you're breeding this pack of dogs and he would go off to war and nobody had his vision so his pack would fall apart and then he started from scratch over and over but he's able to do it because breeding is that one of those things it's an art and a science and a skill and if you do you know it's hard work but it is a way to distinguish yourself so to me it's all about being a successful breeder i don't want to say i don't care about one person's opinion Mm -hmm. but i don't i mean i just really it's like in medicine like you know there's all these doctors they have different opinions too and sometimes you just look at all these judges they're just people you know and i don't you know if they want to learn they can learn or not learn whatever is they give me their opinion and if they gave me more input that helps me be a better breeder Mm -hmm. you know that i would listen to it but my mentors come from all over and from many different breeds of learning how to do this well but it's just one person's opinion and that's a big part of the game otherwise Mm -hmm. the computer could do it you could just do a video of these and the computer could decide Mm -hmm. and that would be no fun and we wouldn't get to watch dog shows. I would love to see that, you know, people wanted to stay. 
and if people who are listening to this are aware of how dog shows work, like you, it's a, you know, tiered thing. Like you go through the lower classes and then, you know, then the more, uh, the, the best of breed winner then goes on to the group. There's one of the seven group winners. And then the winner of each of those groups competes in best in show. And to me, a thing from a sort of uh, a micromanaging thing that I think would change everything is to say you don't get any points for winning best in show. Your points stop at winning the group because then the judges would be much more aware and skillful within the group. It's hard to really know, you know, more than a hundred standards like this inside and out, you know, just like any test in their similarities. So I think it would be more intense. And then I think that best in show should be more of a exciting, fun, you know, maybe a prize or something like that. So that people would be interested in just watching these beautiful dogs, but they all leave. And so we have to do something that make people, you know, that not make people, but that entice people to want to stay. And you know what? They don't, you know, they don't want to stay to find out who gets the points. That's what the people who are at home paying the bills are interested in. So it's pushed all the advertising and things like that. It makes people feel like it's unfair. And I suppose that it is, but it's inherently unfair because of subjectivity. But at the end of the day, you could go and we could all enjoy watching beautiful dogs. That's what I would love. And if you point to the dog that you think is the best example, you can still, that dog could still be used. They often have been frozen or, you know, and, or you could, you know, see, do they have a son or something like that? So breeding, modern breeding is different than how breeding was before. So those are the changes, my opinionated changes. (laughs) I would, you know, I would say we're hemorrhaging from the sport and we already are anemic. And, you know, people are giving, you know, like a one a day with iron pill to try and fix it. And I'm like, nope, that's not going to work. We need a new way of getting a whole lot of people in. And I I also think that we need to combat, you know, the uh, who are we competing with? People want dogs. Okay, the demand for dogs is high. So where are they getting their dogs? Well, they like to go and do a rescue because it's makes you feel like a good person. Like this dog would have died if I didn't rescue it. But the reality is we're breeding all these dogs in just a different kind of puppy mill outside of the United States. They're shipped in. They, um, many of the shelters are really, it's a perfect word for them because they're tax shelters. They mm-hmm. used to be a pound where they were impounded dogs like cars. And then it went home pounding where we call it a shelter. And, uh, the rescue, all those words make people feel like they're doing something good. And they are. So they're doing something good for a dog. So for me as a preservation breeder, I try and get people to want to do things for the good of a breed. Mm-hmm. Well, do we need these dogs, these purpose-bred dogs, when they're purpose, they can't do the purpose that they were bred for anymore? Yeah, well, that's what museums are for. Mm-hmm. They're full of all kinds of stuff we don't use anymore. And we still like them. We like history and museums. So I just say that, you know, that's something that's inherent in people. So I think that the way of getting people interested in this is so that they can feel good about what they're doing, be interested in the history of their dog and that they're contributing. They're a, they're a curator of a living museum. 
So that is what the dogs are, is they're living history, and they need guardians and curators and volunteers and things like that to care for it and preserve it and guard it. Because if nobody does it, then it's all lost forever. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. 100% agree. 